Welcome to the Samuel Andreev Podcast. My guest today is the composer and musicologist Martin Idden. I'm having Martin Idden on the show today to talk to us about John Cage. He happens to be one of the foremost specialists and experts in the field of Cage studies in the world today, and he has recently published an entire monograph devoted to Cage's seminal piece, The Concert for Piano and Orchestra. So this is a piece that I've been engaging with for quite some time now, and the prospect of having an entire book-length monograph devoted to this one piece I think is extremely exciting. So, Martin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So one of the things I want to talk with you about today is a question that has been dogging me ever since I first started engaging with the work of Cage. If you look at the reception of Cage's music, you hear comments such as Luciano Berrio saying that he enjoys Cage's performances as long as Cage himself is on stage, and if he's not, he gets terribly bored. You also hear people like Boulez and other major figures from that generation saying that, in a sense, Cage's contributions were refreshing in that they allowed composers to get away from the more sort of dry and perhaps cerebral conceptual preoccupations of the Darmstadt generation into something that was completely different from that. So he's often framed as a kind of refreshing figure, if not a joker or some kind of maverick figure that in a certain sense is entertaining and diverting. But I think one of the things that these comments point to is that such critics are not actually engaging directly with the music itself. And that is also reinforced by his reputation as being sort of a philosopher of music, someone where you would not necessarily sit down and listen to the entire Freeman Etudes, for example, but you might discuss them. So the music is often talked about in sort of more conceptual or philosophical terms. But I think what your book does, and correct me if I've got this wrong, is that you seem to be trying to frame Cage in terms of him being a more traditional musical figure in the sense that we can, in fact, listen to and evaluate the pieces as pieces. First of all, what would you say about this background to the critical reception of Cage that I've just laid out? Do you think that's accurate? And how can we today get beyond that reputation and simply appreciate the music for what it is? I mean, in some ways, that that first bit speaks to a thing that's that I'm increasingly concerned with as a topic in that I, I think you're right. We normally read those discussions of Cage that uh, we're saying, saying that in the sort of relatively early German reception, but it happens elsewhere too. There are comparisons made between Cage and Tudor and Keaton and Chaplin um as as if we're, we're we're watching some sort of slapstick on stage and the status it has is entertainment and i've spent a fair bit of time rereading that reception 
and thinking that when some people say that, it absolutely is intended in those sort of damning, slighting ways that says, yes, this is fun, but it's not really music. And then reading other people, and other people here specifically includes Adorno, and thinking, well, no, I mean, Adorno was very clear that he thought that Chaplin was a, a proper artist, an artist of the first degree, doing important work. And so there is a little bit of me that kind of thinks, well, um, unless you have from from the get go this this presumption that the musical work that music does ought somehow to be cerebral, lack, uh, lacking in viscerality, you'd have to have that presumption in the first place for this really even to stand as a criticism. So, so, so I'm I'm increasingly sort of interested in a, in, in in thinking about that that apparently damning judgment of Cage and of Tudor too, and, and, and trying to think about how one might reclaim that as a positive value judgment, as I think actually might have been occasionally meant by some people at the time. But you're right, that I think is, is allied in the book with, throughout almost all of it in the end, a discussion of Cage as in many respects a very conventional composer. Um, one of the one of the reasons, I suppose, for approaching it in the way we have done, which is which is to turn to the sketches and to, and to treat them in um, a, a very traditional musicological sense uh, through through the lens of sketch studies, and also to go and 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 try to adduce what can be adduced of compositional process, is precisely to say, look, there is there is a compositional process here, and there's a compositional process which. For for me, as a scholar of of the of the art musics of the nineteen fifties in general, seems actually very very familiar, and you know part of the familiarity of that is Cage operates by dividing things into parameters, and he operates by creating statistical frames in which in which those parameters will be realized, and he lays those things on top of one another, and in the doing of that, he has to negotiate between them such that the unexpected occurs, and in many respects. I could say something much the same as a description of how Boulez operates in the 50s. And if I simply did it in those bald terms and didn't say who I was talking about, I think it would sound very much like a, a, a very traditional Darmstadt style of working. And I don't think Cage is anything like as distant from that in the 50s as as might be anticipated. There is, there are, of course, it... it, it, it very significant differences, which are to do with his his form of interest. Boulez, for instance, once he has created that frame, will act on it in all sorts of ways, whereas Cage is much more interested in trying to frame the compositional questions that he's asking as accurately as he can do, such that whatever happens thereafter will be a perfectly reasonable version of the piece. I think that's where some people get lost in terms of Cage. And that brings us to an interesting and what I think is a central paradox in terms of Cage reception, which is that on the one hand, we're asked to accept that a work can be open to the degree that a piece like the Concert for Piano and Orchestra is open, which is to say that the piece can be played integrally with all of the parts present. It can be played with some of the parts being omitted or truncated. You can play a portion of the piece, you can in fact play none of the score, and if one were to look precisely at the instructions that come with the score, 
any of those would be considered valid interpretations of the piece according to Cage's own definition. At the same time, we're simultaneously asked to accept that such a completely open-ended composition also stands as a work in the same sense that a Beethoven symphony stands as a work. So there seems to be perhaps something that is a stumbling block for many listeners, which is how can it be both an unbounded object and a bounded object in the sense that it would need to be in order to qualify as a work? I'm not certain that this is a terribly radical statement, although it points towards something which is much more common than might be anticipated in the shape of musical works. So if instead of positioning Beethoven as the comparator, we positioned a Verdi opera, or for that matter, a Broadway musical, you might well be in a situation of saying, well, actually, we could cut all sorts of things from this. We could remove these parts. These parts could be played by other instruments. Um, we can take, in the case of Verdi, this aria out, replace it with another one. And there will be still no point at which you'd say, well, no, we, 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 we don't have the same work. Those things are already enormously variable and, and enormously fluid. And that's part of, of, of their history and a part of their performance practice. And it's only when you start out from the ideal that there should be some sort of fixed work in the same in the same sort of way that you should be able to look at the score and work out what it's going to sound like from that score that you you encounter the problem in the first place and in some ways uh and i and I, I i suppose this tends towards the idea that, that that cage is thinking about music rather than writing music but i think he's thinking about music and writing music at the same time and i'm not even sure those are, are necessarily dissociable ways of acting or ways of composing he's pointing to a situation that's actually terribly common i think i don't think in that sense the concert is all that radical, except in the way that it forces um, a listener to recognize the relative normality of the situation that he's presenting. Okay, okay. So that's that's quite interesting. So you'd, you'd be arguing then that it's, it's something that is not in itself particularly new in music, but it's simply being foregrounded in a way that you can't ignore it in this particular work. Have I got that right? Yeah, certainly it's something like that. I think a great deal of, of, of what Cage often does is point towards normal situations that you might have missed. And this is, this is, I think, one of those. Okay. So I'd like to compare this to a couple of roughly contemporaneous, actually probably slightly earlier instances. So Earl Brown, certainly in the early 1950s, was producing a number of, I think, what certainly would constitute limit cases in terms of how far can you go in the direction of graphical scores or in terms of uh, defining something as a work. If we take a work such as the folio of Earl Brown, which uses a variety of graphic notations, there are many recordings available of pieces such as December 1952, which of course is a, a very famous work of graphic notation in which there's no staff at all. There's a, there's a box basically with a series of horizontal and vertical lines of various thicknesses. And it seems that Earl Brown's concept of that was that it was not a composition, but rather an activity, and one that of course could be realized in the most varied ways imaginable, depending on the performer and what they wanted to do with the piece. So what I'm interested in knowing is, how would you compare and contrast a work such as December 1952, which emphatically is not considered by its author to be a composition, 
and something like the concert? Well, I mean, again, it depends on what you're thinking of as a composition, and uh, you know, I, 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 I don't want to speak for, for for Brown or for Cage, really, but there is a degree to which both of those things set out to frame a certain sort of activity, and the Brown does that in a much looser way than the Cage does, and yeah, I suppose that does function as a as, as a sort of limit case in that. There are maybe not infinitely many, but innumerable ways of interpreting that, except to say that the history of that has tended to interpret it in in a sort of time space with the horizontal lines giving you a sense of time and reading the vertical axis as a pitch axis. And indeed, that's, that's exactly what most of the early performances of that did specifically the the, the performance I'm thinking of is uh, the, the early performances by David Tudor, and his realization of that is pretty literalist in that sense. So in some ways, it's also a later tradition to treat that as giving the sorts of degrees of permission that sort of say you can respond to this whichever way you like. Right. Okay. So so that would seem to invite uh, then flipping the question around somewhat and taking recordings of December 1952, for example, of which there are now quite a few, and comparing them, and then asking the question, what do these recordings have in common? Do they have any, do they have any degree of overlap? Is there anything that audibly connects these various audio artifacts in such a manner that we could say they all stem from the same source? And it seems to me that with December 1952, at least given the versions of the piece that I've heard, it's extremely hard to do that. Whereas with the John Cage concert, there is a much higher degree of correspondence between different recordings of the work, where you can identify the broad characteristics of the piece. What do you think? I'm I that that I, I think to be to be honest, most of my experience would say the other way round. Although I have heard I have heard some recordings of, of December nineteen fifty two where it's it's very, very distant from anything I can see in the score at all, and I'd and I'd love I'd love to know from those recordings how the interpretation has gone on, what what what's been done with this, what the activities uh, uh, have been undertaken to realise it. Um, and I suppose in some ways I, I belie myself as a as a cage scholar by thinking about the act of realisation at all, and of course in in all sorts of ways. Brown with a much more direct interest in improvisation allows you in that sense to treat this very very differently but if i think i, I if i think of the the performances i know of not just the concert but the solo for piano as a part of it they seem enormously variable to me i mean especially in terms of what individual pianists might choose to do with the notations of the solo and the particular way in which you then might might, might choose to to distribute and arrange them yeah, there's a number of places we could take that, actually, because it's quite an interesting point. But what I would relate that to is Feldman, at around the same time, or slightly later, actually, eventually became frustrated with his experiences writing open scores or writing uh, pieces using graphic notation, in the sense that the permissions he was affording to the performer seemed to him at the time to be resulting in performances that were too lax or that were too far from what he had in mind. In other words, rather than liberating sound, which was his intention, he found that he had inadvertently liberated the performer. And that was not what he wanted. So uh, although in theory, 
nothing says that you can't take one of the Feldman projections pieces and play it in a kind of pan-diatonic style, you know, using uh, bits of Aaron Copland and things. I mean, you, you could do that, right? Or you could play Yankee Doodle, it doesn't matter, <laughs> because there's nothing uh, contradicting that in the, in the instructions. However, implicitly, there's an understanding that there are certain pitch materials, let's say, uh, or approaches to performing that would be stylistically appropriate in that situation and others that would not be. So even though it's not explicitly stated in the score, that seems to be implicit. And when performers took too many liberties in that sense, it made Feldman intensely frustrated, which is one of the reasons why he eventually turned to writing more precisely notated scores. Cage yeah. does not seem to have done that. Well, I mean, it it depends on how you look at it in some ways, because yes, of course that 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 that's true. Although I'm I'm not certain that that Yankee Doodle Dandy is is available, but there are there are all sorts of places where you go, yeah, you could absolutely play diatonic material. You you could play tonal material through this, and and there is nothing at all in the score that would prevent you from doing that, except for the fact there's a performance history where that doesn't happen. Um, and of course, in in those in the very early realizations of of Feldman graph pieces that that Tudor gave, he tried to react immediately to the score, and what he found, of course, was that his fingers fell into the patterns he already knew, and he was getting something that was very familiar out of it, and that 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 was was frustrating from his point of view and from Feldman's point of view, and so there's a very active decision that he's going he, he's going to make decisions about where his fingers are going to be so that they are not going to be the chord patterns that come to his hands instinctively. Out of that, of course, begins already to build the performance practice that says, these are Feldman sounds, these are not Feldman sounds, that then becomes played out much more more fully at the point at which Feldman himself starts to say, well, these are the relationships between pitches that, that that I would choose for myself. Cage takes, in, in all sorts of ways, a, a, a very different but related route in that, yes, uh, he, he, he works with, with a broader range of players, but yes, those players also take liberties. I mean, quite, quite literally so in the, 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 the way in which um, Don Butterfield, the tubist in the premiere of the concert for piano and orchestra, plays a little bit of the Augers of Spring from, from Stravinsky's right. Um, where there's there is no there is no no possibility at all in 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 the score for the solo for tuba to to allow him to do that, and equally in the European premiere, there's this uh, little schoolyard taunt that's that 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 that's, that's played by the clarinetist. So there's there are proper introductions of of foreign material that that whether where there definitely is no possibility the score would allow you to do that there, and what Cage ends up doing, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm unconvinced this is unrelated, in some ways is a continuation but an expansion of what he's already been doing, which is to say he works with performers he trusts. And and there are there are there are problems with that in some ways. Ben Pikett's very, very wisely pointed out that from Cage's point of view, anything that David Tudor plays as a result of one of Cage's scores is fine because Cage has already decided in advance that anything that Tudor Tudor plays is going to be fine. But there's also a sort of a a genuine feeling amongst this small group that they do know what one another's music sounds like. They do know how to play it. And that's why in, in some respects across the sixties, 
Cage increasingly, I, I don't think it's a, a, a retreat as such, but increasingly works with performers who he already knows are going to do the things that he wants to do. And, and he describes less and less and less what the piece is going to be. And it's only been at the, at the end of that decade, um, both on the, on the one hand with, with, with harpsichord, which, which literally quotes other music in, in a way that you, you typically can't hear live because of the density of activity, and cheap imitation, which uh, quote quotes Seti Socrate, where you kind of can hear it because it's not that 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 dense. That he comes back to writing for musicians he doesn't know that well. Okay, so Martin, maybe a way to conceptualize this, and and this is actually helping me, is in the sense that if you were to take pretty much any classical or romantic score, you could say much the same thing. Uh, to a different degree, of course, but you could you could take the Chopin Nocturnes, for example, and point out that there's nothing in the score anywhere that says that you have to play with rubato, which everybody does. Uh, but it becomes an ingrained thing due to the weight of the performance tradition around those works. And it's the same with Beethoven, it's the same with Mozart and so on. There's There are certain unwritten, uh, unexplained performance traditions that nevertheless are part of the accumulated weight of the piece's history. So perhaps one could make the argument that the same is operational in this cage piece. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And and again, it's that same sort of thing is that you kind of, I don't think you can quite miss it here either. I think it usefully points to the the, the ways in which those performance histories in, inflect future possible performances and how increasingly difficult it becomes to perform a version of, of, I mean, almost any piece, which is both not an unfair reading of the text, but is also a reading of it that, that didn't previously exist. Right. Okay. And I also, I want to respond to something you said earlier, which you were talking about David Tudor, uh, explaining that if he were to react spontaneously to Cage's notations, he would end up invariably reproducing patterns that he had already integrated as a performer. I mean, actually, specifically Feldman's notations rather than Cage's, but yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, right. Fair point. So, um, but with, with respect to the solo for piano and the other components of this piece, one thing I've often observed is that performers frequently, perhaps not invariably, but very frequently, make their own realizations of the score. In other words, fully notated versions of Cage's own notations, which they then have to memorize and practice and so on in, in order to prepare the performance. So in other words, it seems to be rarely the case that a performer would get up on stage with the score of the piece and simply react spontaneously to the notations. Nobody seems to do that. Yeah, I, I, I would generally hope that performers wouldn't do that with these notations. There are there are certainly notations in the solo for piano that you can read more or less directly, but most of the notations in the solo for piano, I don't think you can read directly. I, I, I think the 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 complexity of the instructions is such that even if you don't go and make a full realization in advance even if you don't go to the, go, go go to the sort the, the, the sort of full scale i'm going to go and get my my own little pad of manuscript i'm going to i'm going to write out exactly what i'm going to play i think it is necessary to have spent time with it working out what the instructions say for a particular notation how you intend to work with that and you know very often that i 
I mean, in the process of, of, of writing the book, Philip and I have spent hours poring over the, the index of instructions for notations that Cage gives at the beginning, trying to work out what some of them mean. There, 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 there are some which talks about talk talk about reversing things. Some which talk about doing things backwards in time, and there are there are multiple different ways of interpreting what that is. So, I don't think it's easy to imagine a performance which is true to what the notation asks that unmediatedly just responds to this as some sort of visual cue. Right. Okay. I mean, I don't think it's impossible, but I, but it, but it seems that seems to me that that would be um, at least a relatively unusual decision to take. Well, what does it tell us that so many performers feel compelled to produce these fully notated uh, realizations of the score in order to perform it? Uh, and I would I would ask the same question, incidentally, with respect to to Feldman or Earl Brown or anybody else working in that sort of direction. Is it is there not a, a sort of a contradiction, perhaps, or a, a at least a an interpretive problem, in the sense that the notations must be somehow mediated? We cannot uh, play them or even just practice them on their own without translating them into some sort of more conventional notation. It doesn't seem. I mean, perhaps I've spent spent so long with Cage, I, 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 it, it's barely even a, a question I'd think about. I mean, in some ways. What Cage over the decade of the 50s does, I think, is he moves from trying to find ways compositionally to circumscribe the field of possibilities that he will then translate into something that's fixed. And and you get that in music of changes, you get that in music for piano, to something which provides the same sort of opportunity to encounter a thing that's unexpected on behalf of the performer. Uh, and you already would see that in winter music where there are lots of decisions to be made. There are lots of different ways in which that might happen. There are lots of different ways of deciding how you're going to spell out the various chords that have options in them, expanding out to, to an enormous scale in the concept of piano and orchestra. Now, of course, one of the things that's embedded in this is that Cage wasn't writing for any pianist. He was writing for the particular pianist he knew was going to play it, and who who he knew enormously well, lived very close to, worked to work with on an everyday basis, toured with with Merce Cunningham Dance Company, and it seems fairly clear for for a long period that Cage wasn't really expecting anyone else necessarily to play this. So part of the purpose of what's going on is actually to set up exactly that situation, but to do it because he had a pianist who wanted those challenges. So he keeps setting new puzzles for his pianist to solve. And they have to keep being new new puzzles because otherwise his pianist will get bored as well because he, wants, to, he wants, wants a new challenge, a new way of working through this, a new way of creating a thing he wasn't expecting out of the score. Right. Okay. So, so clearly, Tudor had a, a privileged working relationship with Cage, and he understood what Cage wanted to a degree that perhaps few other performers at the time would have had. There's a question that this brings up for me, though, also, and which I've often heard from other composers. If we were to take the case of a work such as Aus den Sieben Tagen, 
from Stockhausen, which is a, a, a set of text-based scores, so they're not graphic scores, but rather a set of instructions uh, that were intended to be realized spontaneously in a kind of collective group improvisation. In reality, the improvisations were actually not so improvised, but required lengthy working sessions. We know this from the, the work history of that particular piece. But nevertheless, some of the the performers that worked on these uh, initial early versions of those pieces, including the trombonist Vinko Globokar, expressed frustration at the time in the sense that the scores were sufficiently open so that the performers really had to step outside of the normal relationship between a composer and a performer and to some extent create the work themselves. Globokar was known to have been quite unhappy about this and, and complaining that, look, this is a that this uh, LP is going to go on sale with your name on it, but I wrote my part myself. How does that uh, stand in relation to something like Cage's practice? Is there not a, a the potential for a uh, a problem there? Again, I'm not sure I really see it. I mean, the, the, there's 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 a degree to which the Austin Siebentagen pieces are. I mean, on the on the one hand, if it, it's a fair number of them are actually much, much more fixed in terms of the process that's being asked of a performer. Not, I mean, not least because the instructions are are are, are so relatively short and and, and brief and uh, are often rather elusive and figurative in, in in all sorts of respects. So, in some in some ways, they're 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 much less open, and in other ways, they're much much more open because within the framework of of of, of, a, of, a, of a simple process, there there really is any number of ways in which you could conceivably realize it. Whereas I don't think most cage notations, even really open cage notations, function like that, because they're not they're not prompts for improvisation by and large, though you could use them in that sort of way, and, and, and indeed people late, later do. They are much they're much closer to puzzles. They're much closer to 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 here's a particular way of working and thinking and it, you can work through this in multiple ways but there's a sort of limited frame of of answers that you can make out of this what i'd suggest now is that we we back up just slightly to present the work more generally as particularly for listeners who might not already be familiar with the concert for piano and orchestra so i'd, I'd like to just point out, just to start with, that this book was in fact written in collaboration with the pianist Philip Thomas, who sadly was not able to be with us today. But uh, this book is very much a, a collaboration. And that the, the fact in and of itself that you've written an entire monograph on what is a relatively recent piece, I think is worth noting as well, because that's very seldom done, particularly with respect to composers who are alive or who are recently deceased as is the case with John Cage. So it's, it would be much more normal to have uh, a book studying you know, a range of works or perhaps a, a period of the composer's work history. But to focus exclusively on one piece, I think, is in and of itself quite a remarkable thing. And also to have done it with such extraordinary forensic detail. So I wonder if you could, first of all, just start out by presenting the project of this book, what you aimed to do, and, and what it was that led you to devote such a significant portion of your time to a single work by Cage. What is it about this one work? 
I mean, in the first instance, I, I have to blame Philip entirely for this. He's played the piece several times. I'd previously written about it in probably the the largest individual section of my book on Cajun Tudor, uh, which has got the also got the correspondence. It's probably the, the, the biggest bit. So Philip already knew I was, was interested in it, and he played it a bunch, and he's written about it before. And we sat down to have a chat in a cafe in London. I can't remember exactly when, a long time ago now. And Philip said, what do you reckon to doing a big project on the concert for piano and orchestra? And I thought, yeah, all right. That sounds like fun. Uh, and in, in some ways, it was it was kind of as as silly as that. Um, and when you start looking at that, you kind of go, "Oh no, this really is this really is plausible. This is this this isn't just some sort of pipe dream because it's a really it's a really really useful lens to look at everything that Cage did in the nineteen fifties and quite a lot of things that he did in the nineteen sixties. I mean, it, you, you you're right that normally, of course, you'd sort of do the periodization, but the 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 piece does so many things as a as a focal point so one of the things that happens really on in the solo for piano the 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 not the first notation in it but the second two two notations are both notations of previous pieces so two two previous pieces the 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 two preceding pieces really music for piano and winter music are literally inserted into the solo for piano all of the instrumental parts, which of course are all individual parts for individual players and can be played independently, are also essentially repetitions of the 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 the, the mode of writing that he had for music for piano. So that, so there's a there's a, a a sort of recollective aspect that the piece has that that it it it's a summation of what he's done previously and the other major piece that that, that that precedes it the the, the ten thousand things which are sort which are, are, are really sort of virtuosic pieces for for different instruments gets inserted as another notation within the piece but not only that later on in the piece other notations are then the notations of later cage pieces so variations which will become variations one is is one of the notations in in the concert the notation or or a version of the notation for Fantana mix which is an, an, another piece that's that's just on the horizon is in there so it so it, the the piece is, is is retrospective and and perspective in that in that sort of way in terms of Cage's own output so it offers a really useful lens for looking at how he was working it offers a really useful way of talking about his working relationship with David Tudor, which is a really central one because Tudor was the pianist for it, but it was also as a piece used as the accompaniment for Merce Cunningham's choreography Antic Meat. So it, it's a really useful lens for talking about how Cage works with dance and how dance works with Cage. The premiere of it is what's used for one of the most important early recordings of Cage, one that's still in print. So it's also a way of looking at how Cage ends up on record and how that works and how people engage with, with recordings of Cage. And indeed, what recordings of indeterminate music mean it the, the solo piano then ends up on a second really important recording so that which, which is the indeterminacy recording and beyond even that it's one of the pieces that's central to cage getting a publishing contract so it lets us talk about how that happens how how, how someone decided to publish this score which is perhaps not surprising that you'd be engaged by this because it's a very, very beautiful score. It doesn't look like anyone else's notation, really. And even beyond that, it then turns out to be 
almost the touchstone piece for Cage's reception in Europe. That's the, this is the piece that people keep returning to over and over again in order to talk about who Cage is. So yeah, of course, you're dead right. Normally, you'd sort of take a broader view. But I think for us, we, we, we ended up after that initial pipe dreamy conversation of this is a great piece, this will be a fun thing to spend time with, thinking, no, actually, it really is a very, very useful lens for looking at all these other things that lets us talk about Cage throughout the 1950s, throughout a great deal of the 1960s. So, you know, in some ways it does do that periodization, but it does it through a really specific focus. Okay, I'm, I'm really glad you pointed that out. And I hope that uh, musicologists will take note of that, incidentally, because there there are certainly a few instances of monographs being devoted to individual pieces. There's a series of books published in France, for example, that deal with works such as Eclat by Boulez or uh, Ainsi la nuit of Dutilleux or the uh, Symphony Opus 21 by Webern. These are relatively short monographs, and they tend to be exclusively focused on technical points relating to the work itself. So they don't tell us a great deal about the uh, historic context, about what the piece is pointing to, about where it lies with respect to the, the author's larger work list. They tend to be very focused exclusively on technical considerations, often dealing almost exclusively with questions of pitch organization, for example, which has often seemed to me like a particularly myopic view of what uh, what musicology can do or what writing about music can do. Whereas what your book does is it throws an enormous amount of light upon not only this one piece, but the entire period. It tells us a great deal also about the early reception of the piece, what that means, how it, uh, how it affected the music of its time. And uh, it's also uh, tied up with, with the social history of this music in, in ways that are extremely interesting. So I think that's a model, really, uh, of what writing about music can do. And I'm just thinking now about how extraordinarily it would, exciting it would be if we had a whole series of books like this. If, for example, someone were to write an entire book on La Terre Autonome of Fernihoe, for example, or Les Espaces Acoustiques of Griset, talking not just about the technical dimension of how the piece was put together, but what it tells us about that particular cultural moment. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean... From my point of view as a, a as a musicologist, you know, I, I I often say somewhat glibly, and it, uh, and I don't mean it to be quite as glib as it's gonna as it's, it's gonna come across that I'll happily believe in the music itself as soon as anyone can point me to some of it. Mm. I you know I, I I none of this is 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 a thing that that I think can be sundered from cultural context. None of this is a thing that I can think can be sundered from from personal contexts either. Yeah, the, the the work has to be has to be central to some extent, but but the work also is something that that tells us a great deal about not only the concerns that are inherently tied up with the work itself. It's not a, it's not a hermetic object, in other words. It, it 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 exists within a particular context, and understanding that context is is quite important. And I think for non specialist audiences also, I think that's an incredibly important point because if you're coming at some of this music from the perspective of somebody who is perhaps not as intimately familiar with it as you or I might be, then the only real entry point I think a lot of people can get into it is if you were to connect it with something else that they might be more familiar with. And so this sort of study, I think paradoxically, even though it's very focused on on detail, might help such a listener to do that. Well, it's it's certainly a nice thought, and and um, this might even be a, a a point briefly to touch on 
the broader project that this is a part of because the, the, I mean the, the, the book is what I, I certainly spent uh, an awful lot of my time in the project working on but there are other things that really are about demystifying this music because in, in some ways that's that sort of sense that, that that I think you might have from the outside that you ought to be able as a pianist to to pick up this very arcane notation and 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 just weave magic out of it by simply sitting down at a piano and 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 doing what happens is a thing that we'd want to demystify and in, in some ways demonstrate the ways in which this is a perfectly normal score once you know how to read it and one of the ways in which we did that within the broader project is um, we worked with a brilliant programmer called Chris Meelan to develop some software which would enable you to realize the notations of the of the individual parts of the solo for piano. So on, on the website cageconcert.org, which also has lots of other other stuff and lots of interviews with, with Apartment House who played the piece uh, with Philip while we were running through the whole project, there's the solo for piano app that will actually let you sort of get to grips with those notations and show you them and show you what you can do with them, show 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 you how flexible they are and indeed how not flexible they are, at least up to a certain point. So so yeah, a whole point of this really is about I don't think it's I don't think it, it's in any sense about take taking away from what a significant composer Cage was, but about turning him into on some level just a composer. A composer who worked in super interesting ways and, and thought really imaginatively and, 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 and made beautiful work, but nevertheless, just a composer that there's, that there's no reason to be worried of or unnerved by or feel is, is, is somehow radically different from, from the rest of the tradition. Right. Okay. So I'd like to expand upon that question because I think that's that's an argument that your book makes, makes quite well, but maybe we could lay that out for listeners who haven't read it yet. So in a sense, you're arguing that Cage is a much more traditional figure than he's often presented as. You're reframing the work in that context and saying, no, this, this really is a, a work that has many traditional parameters. Uh, this is a piece that is often encountered for the first time in these sort of book-length surveys of 20th century composition. You know, every university, undergraduate university program uh, has one of these uh, publications where it's, it's like a general introduction to new music of the 20th century where you have, you know, let's say a, a chapter on Schoenberg, the second Viennese school, maybe a chapter on Cage, Feldman, and Brown, uh, you know, a chapter on Ludislavsky, a chapter on uh, new complexity, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a kind of digest of, of what happened in the 20th century. And you'll often have uh, reproduction of score pages from this particular piece. This is one of the probably the most reproduced scores uh, of that entire period. So the first thing you see is the notation. And the emphasis is very much on it as a work of visual art and the ways in which it is conspicuously unusual or innovative in that sense. But you're saying, let's not emphasize that aspect so much. Let's approach this as a more conventional piece of music. How do you do that? How do you reframe the piece in that sense? What about it is traditional? Well, I mean, it's also worth acknowledging that Cage himself is partly responsible for, 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 for this history. He did sell the score pages at an art gallery. That absolutely did happen at the same time. Cage was not terribly wealthy at the time. So selling the score pages was, was, was at an art gallery given that, that he had artist friends who were doing much better financially than he was, was probably a, a, a pretty good way of making some cash. Um, so I, 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 don't think we should t- I don't think we should take away from the, the physical beauty of the score and the imagination of the notations. At the same time, they are musical notations that, 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 that have musical results. 
where you if you follow the instructions then you will end up with something where you kind of go oh actually this is this is the way to read it it is a puzzle it does it does it does involve a little bit of of hard work as a, as as a performer but if you broadly if you take this seriously as as a serious mode of notation and follow it through then you'll simply end up with something that's that's another piece of notation though it's a piece of notation you weren't expecting and that that is really important it, it, quite quite there are, there are lots of notations in this the, the ones that were notations i mentioned earlier where you can sort of play them at sight and you are expecting those and then there are lots of them where when you realize that them they're they're very different from what you might expect on the page in truth when you realize that the, the notations it's amazing how pitchy the solo for piano is there's a lot of pitch in it there's a lot of of, of very very traditional pitch content and and so in some ways it's the it, it, it's the doing of that i think that that makes you encounter the normalcy of it but that normalcy i don't think it should take away from the the, the fact that it's got to in a very unconventional route that involves and engages the player in ways that are a bit different from something which gives up all its secrets at first sight Right. Okay. So, there's a, a couple of things that I want to I want to get into there. I mean, as a, as a an analyst, as a, a professor of musical analysis myself, one of the things that I've often tended to do, and which I think is very important, is to get students to move away from score study. You know, a more sort of dryly uh, score oriented approach to analysis, and to look at things more phenomenologically. And at least to to bring those two approaches into some kind of a dialogue, so that we're not exclusively sitting down and looking at abstract pitch structures, but really in terms of what do we actually hear, how do these structures and way of, and ways of working impact our perception? How might we describe that, and what is the experience of listening to the piece like? So, if we were to take an approach like that to the Cage Concert for Piano and Orchestra, a phenomenological perspective. How would you describe the experience of listening to this work? I'd have to ask you which performance you're talking about. Right. So, is there such a degree of variation amongst performances that it would be difficult to generalize about the piece? Yes and no. I think if let's so so if you were to take any of the instrumental parts and to listen to them individually as individual pieces, and, and you're perfectly at liberty to play any of the individual instrumental parts as an individual piece, then I think there'd be a great deal of commonality. So if you were to encounter, so, so let's say, multiple recordings of the solo for trombone, and there are multiple recordings of the solo for trombone, they are all very similar in in all sorts of respects there, there there are still lots of decisions you can take there are lots of decisions you can take about principally whether notes are going to be long or short um, and about timing but there are lots of individual events that are going to sound enormously similar from realization to realization there will still in that sort of sense statistically be be outlier realizations so you know it's true you don't have to play the whole part you can play just one one pitch from the whole thing and that's absolutely fine and that would constitute a version of the, of, of the piece typically people don't do that however so there would be a there'd be a very wide range of possible interpretations but they probably cluster around a central set of things that would that, that would have a great deal in common and would be very recognizable as one another 
Right. Okay. Okay. So you're touching upon uh, an important aspect of the piece, which maybe we could we could elaborate a little bit. So before we get into that, perhaps just for our listeners, you could explain how this work is constituted, right? Because there's no score as such. Rather, there's a uh, a folder or a, a collection of individual parts that, uh, as we mentioned earlier, can can be played all together or can be played selectively. Some of them can be omitted and, and so on. So could you just maybe to start with, walk us through what the score in fact consists of and what some of the differences are between the soloist's part, the, the, the solo for piano, and all of the others. Well, you describe it very well. So so most of the parts um, are for, for, for individual players. It, it does say for concert for piano and orchestra. Orchestra here is it should be taken either as, as, as chamber orchestra or probably better in the same sort of sense as Benny Goodman and his orchestra. It's a set of individual players who, who come together. And each of those parts is made up of largely pitches and occasionally particularly idiomatic ways of, uh, of performing those individual instruments. And those pitches can be short, medium or long, loud, medium or quiet. Broadly, those parts are all texturally very, very much the same. And they're 12 or 16 pages long. Typically, you'd expect someone to have determined in advance how long a page is, and that will probably remain constant through through the piece. So there'd be a sort of constant flow at the same time, density changes from page to page. So you have a set of instrumental parts that, that are all of a type and are all very similar to one another and consist of actually quite straightforward, more or less punctual material. Then you have the solo for piano, which is of a very, very different order, and a very different order because it was being written for a very different performer. And that's the one that contains lots and lots of notations scattered across pages, including some pages that have no notations on them at all, and some pages that have huge numbers of notations backed up against one another of very, very different types, some of which look like traditional notation, some of which look like traditional notation and aren't, some of which take the form of boxes with dots in them, some of which take the form of grids, um, some of which are borrowed from other composers. There's a little bit that's borrowed from Parch, there's a little bit that's borrowed from Feldman. So basically that's a sort of compendium of different ways of notating stuff that I think if you set out kind of going, this looks like a set of musical puzzles, that's probably a good way of, of viewing it. Right. So there's a fundamental difference then between the way the solo for piano is notated, which is, I suppose, more open-ended, and the various instrumental solos that are somewhat more strict in their notation. Yeah, that's probably that's probably true. There are there are lots of liberties that one can take with the instrumental parts, but not but not to the sort of sort of degree that there is in the solo for piano. Okay. So tell us about how these various parts are coordinated, or at least are, are turned into a, an ensemble piece when the piece is actually performed. So first of all, what does the conductor do, if there is a conductor? And, and secondly, how, I mean, how are these parts, perhaps uh, coordinated is not the right term, but how are they brought together in a, a kind of unified framework? Well, I, I mentioned earlier that it would be common for someone to say, here is how long a system lasts, or here's how long a page lasts. And let's say, for instance, that might be two minutes a page. Let, let, let's, let's say that. So if you had uh, two minutes a page and you had 12, 12 pages you were playing, then we'd have 24 minutes. 
and that feels like it's going to be quite straightforward. So it's just it's it's just time space notation. This takes a particular amount of time. If you have a note that takes place that time into the line, you can map it all out. You can take a ruler if you want to to work all those things out. Uh, and indeed, some people would do, and and some people would be slightly more intuitive about it. However, Cage adds a further complication, which is that the conductor does not conduct. I mean, there's nothing to conduct in that sense. It's not. It, it's not like the, 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 there's a score that the conductor has to has to bring people together with. It's g- given that they can just have a stopwatch that they're following. There's no reason for the conductor to indicate anything else. What the conductor does is the conductor stands at the front of the ensemble and rotates their arms in the manner of a clock. The difficulty is that the conductor will sometimes rotate their arms faster or slower than real clock time, changing the speed at which these predeterminations that performers have made uh, can take place. So occasionally a performer will find themselves having a thing that looked like they were going to have plenty of time to do it, not really have enough time to do it at all. Or occasionally, a, a thing that they thought was going to be really, really busy becomes much more more leisurely. Okay, so uh, are, is there a, is there a separate part for the conductor, or, or does the exactly does there's work? a separate part for the conductor, which which essentially is a set a, a set of ways of converting real time into clock time into the into the clock time of uh, uh, that the conductor is conducting. Right. Okay. Okay. So. So when you say that the conductor can can speed up or slow down, is this uh, something that again is allowed for in the in Cage's notation? Is it uh, specified in the score, or is it simply another aspect of the of the liberty that individual performers can take? Well, I mean, again, there's 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 a sort of historical performance practice element here in that historically the pianist has ignored the conductor. Whatever the pianist has, has, has decided to do, the pianist will continue to decide to do regardless of what the conductor says. Um, there's, there's, there's nothing in the materials that says the, 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 the pianist should or could ignore the, 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 the conductor, but they do. And there's, there is, I think, something uh, interestingly aristocratic about the way in which the, 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 the pianist's position has developed in the ensemble. Um, notionally, I suppose the other players could ignore the conductor. They could choose to do that, but that would almost certainly mean that they'd be left on their own playing their part at the end with no conductor. Um, but so, so, so I think stereotypically, there's the, the, the there's a sort of agreement that that we're all going to follow the conductor, even though it's going to it's going to make our lives difficult and easier in, diff- in different degrees at different times. But of course, you can also play the piece without a conductor, just as you can play it with any one of the parts or any number of the parts, and indeed without the soloist. Right, okay. So so that's perhaps one sense in which the piece can be described as a conventional concerto. The, there's a fundamental difference between the way the soloist's part functions and the way the ensemble parts, if we can call them that, function. So the, the, the soloist is not beholden to the same sort of uh, strictures as the others in terms of this time-space notation, which again is not strictly called for by Cage, but has, uh, has sort of emerged as a, as a performance tradition. Yeah, and all the part of that, of course, is that the performer might not have made a score that's even amenable to being modified in that sort of way. They might not have a time-space score. But yes, it, 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 if there's a, a, a solo pianist there, and there doesn't have to be, typically they don't feel bound by the conductor and yes that does place them in a, in a, a very different position 
So I want to jump ahead to another dimension of the book, which which I found quite interesting, which is the peculiar relationship between Cage and Jazz, and the way that Jazz has a uh, has left a mark on this particular piece. So before we talk about that, I'd like to also relate that to something which is a, a somewhat less known corner of uh, modern music history, which is the influence of Jazz on Varese when he was doing the Poème électronique which is that Verez was going around uh, meeting with jazz musicians in, in New York City, conducting group improvisations and using some of these as raw material, some of which made its way in almost unrecognizable form into this electronic composition, the Poème électronique. Cage seems to have done something somewhat similar with this piece in the sense that even though he is known to have not liked jazz, he seems to have worked closely with jazz musicians on this particular piece. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the background to that. Yeah, and I think it remains fair to say that Cage doesn't seem much to have cared for the sound of jazz. And truthfully, Cage doesn't seem to have known very much about jazz. I mean, there are, there are statements that he makes a little bit later, which are both slighting of jazz and ignorant of it. Nevertheless, Cage seems to have recognised at this stage, at any rate, that if you wanted the most advanced sounds that instruments could make, the people who could tell you what those sounds were were not classical musicians, they were jazz musicians. And he seems actively to have gone out of his way to go and work with jazz musicians on the instrumental parts for the concert piano and orchestra and there are there, there are points where where that becomes really really obvious if 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 you know what to look for which i mean truth be told i didn't know what to look for before starting this but there's that there's um a fairly famous uh uh trombone trick which 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 is was developed by Jack Teagarden, which involves putting a part of the instrument in a cup and playing it with the cup, and it's in the concert. And the only way in which you would have got that is from someone who knew that Teagarden did this. And there are lots of other really obvious nods to jazz timbres when you know what they are and suddenly it sort of starts to make sense that cage says of his next orchestral piece atlas ecliptic that it's the concert without the jazz sounds and i never really understood what that meant except that he, he literally means without the jazz sounds because that's where they came from he also of course and i don't know whether he i was about to say that he came to regret this i don't i'm not i'm not certain that's that's really true at all actually but it certainly has consequences most of the players that he worked with, who were principally jazz and Broadway players, and also, and you know, also depping musicians as well, would then come and play in the premiere of the piece. And with that in mind, it's not necessarily that surprising that those players, in particular, at that premiere, took some liberties with what the score literally says. It's extremely interesting, I think, to think about the interrelationship between 20th century composition and jazz and the various ways that they might have influenced each other. I think it's, it's, I mean, it's certainly the case with Stravinsky as well, that he's known to have admired tremendously the instrumental ingenuity and inventiveness of jazz performers in the sense that you, you, you find something there that you simply don't find amongst classical players, or at least you, that you didn't at the time. Yeah, and I think that's true here as well. There, I mean, and in some ways, the... The thing that becomes really key, though, is it's very easy to think that that t 
tips over into an interest in and a desire for improvisation, which Cage for sure at this point did not want precisely what he 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 later described himself as 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 being angered about was improvisation being introduced into this piece and in some ways that's that's part of that reception history and that performance history that says playing the solo for piano off off the score you can do it but it it isn't really what happened what has happened with it in its history it's it, it's an unusual way of approaching the score rather than a normative way of the score and the the water is of course enormously muddied by the way in which across the course of the 1960s Cage actually does turn to improvisation and does become an improviser of a sort and and Tudor becomes an improviser of a sort as well but at this moment and at this point his interest in jazz is certainly not in the sorts of ways in which people can improvise but in a very utilitarian way in the sounds they can make on their instruments that broadly don't exist in the world in which he's working. I mean, this is, again, that that sort of very traditional modernist pursuit of, of the new. Right. Okay. Okay. So that that's another instance also of the ways in which this is a pivotal work, right? So it, it does relate certainly very strongly to earlier cage pieces that are very precisely notated. There There is no room for improvisation in the traditional meaning of the term in this piece at all. It is precisely notated. There is a certain degree of freedom left up to the performer in terms of what decisions they can make. But in no sense is it a piece that invites improvisation, much in the same sense that the earlier concerto for prepared piano and orchestra uh, does not uh, invite improvisation. So there's, there's a difference there. Nevertheless, the difference between the concert and the earlier concerto for prepared piano is that it's, a, it's, it's an open score in that sense. In the same sense, perhaps, that the Boulez Third Sonata is, or the Stockhausen Klaviostück Elf, which were being done at around the same time. So maybe it's better to frame this as a, an instance of an open score rather than as something that calls for the performers to react spontaneously to, to this graphic notation. I'm not honestly convinced it's an open score in the ways that those scores are. And the reason for that is that in in both of those cases, I mean, with, with, with greater direction in the case of the Boulez than the Stockhausen, the individual detail of, of, of any moment is prescribed. It's the, it's, it's the mode of, of motion from one piece of, of predetermined material to another. That, that that's fluid and flexible whereas in the case of the cage he doesn't even really determine what the mode of motion is at all in the solo for piano and he doesn't determine except in here are the activities you have to do in order to find out what the notes are going to be he doesn't determine what those moments are i think i think in that sense it's much much more open and 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 and, and much freer at the same time, there's there's one reading of the score, which which is uh, one one absolutely promoted by Cage that that says, you read it from left to right, from page one through to page sixty three, and if you were to do that, and that that that's certainly one of the ways in which Tudor initially tried to tried to work his way through it, the one obvious possible formal way of of, of reading the score is actually very very fixed. There are problems with trying to do that because of the different sorts of notations, particularly the ones that ask you to read them backwards. But nevertheless, 
I think the place where the openness rests in the solo for piano is a, is is, is a, a really quite different one from the one that you might find in 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 the Boulez and in the Stockhausen. Right. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And it's it's worth pointing out as well that the the Cage Brown and Feldman incursions into this sort of notation to the extent that one can bracket those three composers together. It's a, it's a kind of strange shorthand that they often are grouped together, although they're vastly different in many respects. But to the extent that you can, you can do that, those uh, innovations, those particular practices, actually predate the sort of European fascination with, uh, with open notations quite significantly. And that's something that was not really acknowledged at the time. Sure, although they're also for, for very, very different reasons. And I, and I think there is a a really interesting point in Cage's history where it seems to me that so you have those presentations in Darmstadt where where Cage specifically talks about what Americans are doing and you have those the, similar talks in the US where he talk, specifically talks about what Europeans are doing and it, it always feels to me that when 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 you read the more famous version of that you get the sense of Cage identifying himself as alien to, to the European scene as, as some sort of intruder there, as some sort of outsider who's... And that, in many respects, seems to me ultimately to be a very European view of Cage, that you look at him as, the, as, as this, this strange American doing strange things, which we'd never do. And increasingly, when I look at the way in which those views are balanced in Cage's own writing, I tend to think that Cage really did see himself as being part of the same scene, as Stockhausen and Boulez and and, and and Nono, and at the same time, Feldman and Brown and later Wolf. And, and I, I don't think he saw the sort of stark European-American distinction that we, we might later make. Right. He might have pointed out also that he was, in fact, a pupil of Schoenberg, which is a, a kind of pedigree that none of the other Darmstadt generation composers had. So, so initially, Cage was was very, very proud of being a Schoenberg student, uh, uh, as you might imagine. He very happily talked about it, and then I think he had the sense that somehow Schoenberg disapproved of him. Um, I don't really know where exactly that came from. And there's this really notable point that when Peter Yates tells Cage that, that, that about this conversation he'd he'd had about about Schoenberg pupils, and the only one that. Uh, Schoenberg could remember was Cage and he said of course he's not a composer but he's an inventor of genius after that point you get this reclamation on Cage's part of being a Schoenberg student um and I I I and I, I think there is it, it, it it's interesting that that gap where he doesn't really talk about it and it happens to be exactly the gap when that would have been sort of of of, of uh, full of cultural capital in the European scene but I think the reason is that that, that Cage didn't really know how he stood with Schoenberg, and when he knew how how he did, I think I I, I think he was very proud of being a Schoenberg student, and, and and wanted to be loyal to what he'd taken to to be the memory of his of his teacher. Okay, so one of the things you get into in the book, and you'll you'll tell me if I've got this wrong, but you you seem to argue that one of the connections between Cage and Schoenberg, or at least one of the aspects in which we can see a, a direct descendants there is Cage's obsession with the idea of variation in this work, which is very much a, a trait that you see in Schoenberg and in the, the Viennese uh, and Central Germanic tradition generally. So, first of all, have I got that right? And secondly, how would you describe the presence of, of something like variation in a piece of this sort? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this is, this is also 
what I mean about Cage wanting to perform to himself, probably above all, that he was being faithful to to his teacher. Because I don't think anyone would intuitively look at a Cage score and think, yep, that looks like a Schoenbeck student. That that doesn't seem to me to be the sort of thing that you'd expect to happen. But... I mean, Cage took lots of things to heart, I I, I suppose, like many of us. But Cage seems to have taken very, very seriously the sorts of things that he had from Schoenberg. And uh, in taking them seriously, that doesn't mean that he took by them anything that Schoenberg might have meant. So I'll come back to the the, the solo for piano in just just a minute. But I think that what we were talking about, about questions earlier... And I think one of the really important lessons that Cage took from Schoenberg is a re- there's a famous story about, about being asked to do um, a counterpoint exercise, uh, which is to, to say simply putting a second line against a given cantus firmus, a given melody. And lots of the people in the class that, that Cage was in had done this, and Schoenberg said, so tell me what all these answers has in common. And and, and and no one could get anything that satisfied Schoenberg. And Cage's answer was that what they had in common was the question that was being asked, which I think then plays out later on in exactly this idea of what Cage is interested in, first of all, is not in providing answers, that's to say fixed scores, but in providing questions that will yield interesting, exciting, unusual results. Results, ideally, that would be surprising to Cage, but the question itself is already fixed. That's also to say that that's what, one of the reasons why the notations in the concert for piano and orchestra are fixed ones, even though they'll result in lots of different possible realisations. There are lots of different ways of playing the, the, those things, far beyond the realms of lots of different ways of playing playing traditional notation like, like, like Beethoven or Chopin. And they're all different from each other, right? So even though the notations individually might have existed in prior compositions by Cage, this work functions as a kind of compendium of different notations. It absolutely is a compendium, but they're not quite all different. So the the, 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 the there's another thing that Cage took from Schoenberg, which is broadly that everything that happens is either a repetition or a variation. Now, what Schoenberg meant by variation is very, very different from what Cage meant, meant by variation. But nevertheless, what he took from that and what, what seems to have upset him is that the, the idea that there isn't the prospect for anything that could be new here. And what you get on the very first page of the solo for piano is a sort of performance of that idea. And the performance of that idea is that you have three notations, one of which is a new notation that's not previously existed in 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 in, in Cage's music, and it's it's a it's a set of pitches with broadly written around near enough a circle, which you can play in one direction or the other direction, um, and and one hand goes one direction, one hand goes the other direction. That's a new notation, and there are two repetitions. There's a, uh, uh, there's, there's the repetition of exactly the notational paradigm of winter music, the, the the piece he just finished before, and the notational paradigm of music for piano, a slightly earlier piece. So he starts off with something new, and start and, and two t- two repetitions, and the way in which he proceeds from that is then each new notation he adds into the score either has to be a new notation, a repetition, or a variation. And the next notation 
notation D, you can see quite rapidly is a variation, and, and, and I'll, I'll explain the very simple way in which that happens. Notation B, winter music, essentially takes the form of chords, aggregates, straight block attacks. Notation D is notated in just the same way, except that it contains instructions for how to turn those into arpeggiated figures, which is to say it's just the same as B. It re re retains all sorts of, it re retains all, actually almost every element of B, except it changes one element. And that's, that's how, how Cage understood what Schoenberg meant by variation, is that it's, it, it's a situation where some elements remain the same and some elements are changed. And in this case, the thing that changes is, here's how you can turn these chords into arpeggios. Right. Okay. Okay. So that's another way that you would relate aspects of Cage's practice to traditional methods and means of, uh, of writing a score. I think, um, well, sorry, you're going to respond to that. I'll, I'll only to say it's, it's, it's conceptually traditional. And actually, there are, there are other notations where you... So notation F looks a lot like notation C, which basically is just points, except that it changes the timescale. So the timescale becomes fluid. And you might view that as a very traditional way of, of, of using augmentation or diminution. Except, of course, that in traditional notation, you'd actually write out longer or shorter notes, whereas this changes a timescale above the top of it. So, so on one level, yes, it's very traditional. On the other le le level, this is a very unorthodox way of doing something very traditional. Okay, so you've written with Philip a 400-page monograph on a piece of cage that cannot be said to be an audience favorite, or at least a piece that is broadly familiar to people. But I have to ask the question, given the enormous expenditure of effort that you've both made on this piece, and I have to commend you again, both of you, for the extraordinary depth of research that you've brought to bear upon this this work. I mean, it's, it's amazing the things that you have turned up, and it makes for a very gripping read. I would also like to very strongly recommend to anyone listening to this uh, that you uh, seek out a copy of this book. It's, it's published by Oxford, and it's called John Cage's Concert for Piano and Orchestra. I'll put a link in the podcast description for anyone who wants to uh, order a copy. Um, I want to know why you would choose to devote so much loving effort to this piece. It, it must mean that you believe that this work has something important to say to us today in 2021. What do you think this work does have to say in the, in the present cultural moment? In some ways, I have a horrible confession to make to you. Not to myself, because I already know that. I, I've, I've spent years and years and years with Cage now, and... I still haven't worked out how I feel about his music. There are pieces that I love dearly. There are pieces that I don't care for. And there are all sorts of, of ways in which I find myself still negotiating my relationship to Cage. And in the end, that's probably the reason why I stay engaged by him above all, in some ways almost depressed to realise that the thing that he sets out to do in, ter in terms to ask, of asking difficult questions for which there are many answers is exactly the level on which I spend myself engaging with him all the time. And the reason why I think he's important in general is because he makes me think about music. And he makes me think about music and what I think what I think about music and what music is and what it can be in ways that I don't think anyone else does at all. And I think 
this piece does that brilliantly and uh, on, on its own terms, precisely in the way in which I don't think it's reconcilable whether this is um, an entirely radical break with everything or an essentially conventionally composed, conventionally performed piece. That 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 here isn't isn't an answer that I can come to or or, or can determine because it seems to to move about depending on how I look at it. There are probably other pieces of Cage where that's true as well, because it's the sort of thing that he does, and it's the sort of way the way in which he prods at the ways in which you think you already know who Cage is and what music is and how music works. But this piece seems to do it particularly effectively, not least because it leaves so much of its antagonisms on display it never resolves that sort of antagonism between the sounds of jazz and the, the the structural approaches of Schoenberg. It just doesn't resolve it. They just they just sit unresolved on the page, and and you have to work through them. So if, I I think that's that's that that's the sort of thing that I think is really important about it. Right. So in in other words, it's it's throwing out paradoxes and problems, I suppose, that are not resolved, that are that are still very much open questions even 60 years after the piece was written. Uh, and uh, in that sense, I suppose, that's uh, making the piece very much a, a living dynamic thing in the sense that the reception of this work is not a settled matter. We, we don't know what it is yet. We, we haven't even perhaps learned how to listen to this music yet. We don't know how to interpret it. That's still very much a work in progress. If you were to take a, another example and, and look at a composer like Haydn, for example, you could argue that, well, it's pretty much a settled matter. We have an idea of how to interpret the music, what it means, what it means culturally, and so on. Uh, that's, that's done. Um, of course, you can find new aspects to, to discuss, and, uh, and perhaps there's, there are still new uh, things to discover in, in research. But by and large, that you know the place of uh, of his music in 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 history is pretty much a settled matter. You can't say that about Cage. No, that, that's true. But also, I mean, I might go even further and 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 say that one of the the the, the, the even broader things that I think Cage might then ask is, why is Haydn settled? What can you think about Haydn that hasn't been thought? Yeah. Well. I, I did a podcast the other day with the poet Christian Book, who pointed out rightly that one of the things that you get to do as a contemporary artist, particularly if the work is is really powerful, is that if you succeed in imposing some kind of a new vision that brings something fresh to the table, that in a sense you're not just changing the future of music, which is what typically gets said about about artists oh they're they're producing the music of the future what you're actually doing is you're simultaneously changing the music of the past yes in the that sense precisely. that right you you cannot hear a beethoven symphony in the same manner once you've engaged with the music of cage and that is a fascinating thing because it's not simply a matter of ushering forth this new vision for the music of the future it's also very much changing your attitude towards things that have already been written. And that's almost like a, a magic trick. It's, it's amazing that works of art have that ability. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That, that, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, music is definitely magic. The whole, the, whole, the, whole, the whole thing is magic. That's poetry, making something appear that wasn't there before. Absolutely. So to close, a final question. Which version of this piece, which recording, would you recommend to someone coming to it for the first time? 
I cannot recommend any a, any other than Philip Thomas playing it with Apartment House. Right. Well, that's a, that's a CD that I have and have listened to many times, and that is coupled with a Christian Wolf piece, incidentally. And uh, yes, I, I agree. That's a wonderful recording. So we'll put a link to that also in the description of the podcast. So, Martin Idden, thank you very much for your time today. It was a wonderful discussion, and I learned a lot. Thank you so much for coming on. Super. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.